You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 216 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, with the last episode, we wrapped up the Perryville story arc. So with this show, we'll be moving on to something new. We'll be staying out west though for a while yet. Up next, we're going to turn our focus to important events in northern Mississippi and cover the battles of Iuka and Corinth, which took place while Braxton Bragg and Kirby Smith were busy up in Kentucky. And then after looking at Iuka and Corinth, we'll shift our focus to the Trans-Mississippi, to my home state of Arkansas, in fact, and we'll talk about the Battle of Prairie Grove. Then we'll head back to the Eastern Theater and see what all was going on in Virginia. And that will take us to the Battle of Fredericksburg. And then to wrap things up for 1862, we'll jump back out to Tennessee for the Battle of Stones River. Yep, uh, and as Tracy said, that will be it for 1862. We plan on doing a couple of year-in-review episodes for 1862 like we did for 1861, and then we'll hit the ground running in 1863. And there is lots of great stuff we've got on the podcast timeline for 1863, like Vicksburg and Gettysburg. But... But we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. So first things first. Let's see what was going on in northern Mississippi while Kirby Smith and Braxton Bragg were up in Kentucky. And if you're wondering why this is important, well... Well, Iuka and Corinth aren't terribly well-known battles, but this actually proved to be a critical phase of the Western War, since it cleared the way for Ulysses S. Grant to then turn his attention to Vicksburg. And as we'll see down the road on the podcast, Grant's long, difficult but ultimately successful campaign aimed at capturing Vicksburg will end up being one of the true turning points of the Civil War. As we've talked about before on the podcast, the first half of 1862 was disastrous for the Confederate Army in the West. Beginning with Forts Henry and Donelson in February, the rebels suffered one defeat after another. The Federal offensive temporarily came to a halt at Shiloh when the Confederate Army of the Mississippi, under Albert Sidney Johnston, surprised the Federal Army of the Tennessee, under Ulysses S. Grant, in its camps on a peaceful spring morning. 
The fighting that day, April 6, 1862, was fierce and bloody, but Grant's troops managed to blunt the Confederate attacks and hold on at Pittsburgh Landing on the Tennessee River. Grant was joined that night by elements of the Federal Army of the Ohio under Don Carlos Buell, and the next day, together, the two Federal forces drove the rebels away. Albert Sidney Johnston had been killed at Shiloh on the first day of the battle, so the Army of the Mississippi was led by PGT Beauregard on its retreat back to Corinth. Grant and Buell now held the advantage, but they wouldn't be given the opportunity to continue the advance on Corinth on their own. Their superior, Henry Halleck, left his headquarters in St. Louis to take personal charge of the combined Union armies, which numbered over 100,000 men after Halleck also called up John Pope's small army, which was fresh from its victory at Island Number 10. Halleck began an overly cautious advance from Pittsburgh Landing toward the vital rail junction at Corinth, fortifying his camps each night to avoid being caught by a surprise Confederate attack. But Beauregard, with only 55,000 men, couldn't risk an assault unless Halleck made a mistake. Old Brains, though, who was engaged in the only field campaign of his career, didn't give his opponent an opportunity to turn the tables on him. As a result, the famed Siege of Corinth resulted in several small engagements, but no significant battle. Beauregard was forced to abandon Corinth on May 30, 1862. The fall of Corinth was hailed by the northern press as a great triumph, even though Halleck had failed to actually damage the Confederate army. Although Halleck had failed to fight a decisive battle and Beauregard had successfully withdrawn to the south, the Union achievement was nevertheless still impressive in the geographic expanse it covered. No previous campaign in American history had involved the movement of so many troops over such a large area. All of Kentucky had been cleared of Confederate troops, and all of western and central Tennessee was either in Federal hands or open to Union occupation. Nashville became the first Confederate state capital to fall to the Federals. By early summer 1862, the entire length of the Mississippi River through the Upper South was cleared of rebel forces. The important commercial port of Memphis, Tennessee, was under federal control after a brief but dramatic gunboat battle on the river. The only Confederate strong point still held on the long stretch of river between Memphis and New Orleans was Vicksburg, Mississippi, although by the end of the summer the rebels would also begin to fortify Port Hudson, Louisiana. Yet as spring gave way to summer in the war's second year, the impressive string of federal successes in the Western theater was in danger of unraveling. Chief among the reasons for that possibility was the overwhelming need for the Union forces in the West to consolidate the tremendous gains they had made thus far. Halleck felt he had to disperse troops to key towns along the logistical network that supplied his army, which already was several hundred miles from its major supply depots in the North. These logistical matters were an absolutely vital strategic consideration in the war's western theater. The system of rivers and railroads in the Upper South had been used by the Federals to great advantage and had allowed them to come so far and conquer so much territory in a comparatively short time. But that same system of rivers and railroads that so greatly aided their conquest of the Upper South didn't so conveniently extend into the Deep South. 
Below Corinth, only one rail line penetrated the vast stretches of territory in central Mississippi, and so new logistical arrangements would have to be considered before the Federals could push further south. In short, by the time it occupied Corinth, the Union Army in the west had reached the end of its rope. It had been relatively easy enough for the Federals to operate in the Upper South. That region was adjacent to Northern Territory, and Union forces could use the system of rivers, railroads, and excellent turnpikes and first-class wagon roads to good effect. But the prospect of pushing into the Deep South posed far more difficult logistical problems for Halleck and his subordinates. The Mississippi River gave the Federals the opportunity to penetrate the Deep South on a narrow front, but otherwise the landlocked interior of the region was a very poor place for the maneuvering and feeding of large numbers of troops. So what we really want you to remember is that the Deep South was an inhospitable area for military operations. In the Deep South, federal commanders would have to decide which areas were important enough to take, and then they'd have to make extensive preparations to send armies into them. Geographic and logistical considerations meant that federal penetrations of the Deep South would necessarily be on very narrow fronts, such as expeditions down the Mississippi or along the rail line from Chattanooga to Atlanta, for example. We really can't stress enough the crucial role that logistics would play in the success of these campaigns. The ability of the Union forces in the Western Theater to supply the troops at the front would be tested to the extreme as operations shifted further south, where the war truly became a conflict of distances, geography, and movement. Real progress or failure was measured by the shifting of forces over the map. And so Western soldiers would have to learn to become tough campaigners as well as fierce fighters, since their part of the war was won as much by marching over vast distances as it was by slugging it out with the enemy on the field of battle. For all of the reasons we just talked about, Halleck was forced to stop after capturing Corinth in late May 1862. He refused to rush in pursuit of Beauregard, who had retreated about 60 miles southward to Tupelo, Mississippi. Halleck realized his massive army wouldn't be able to sustain itself using the single line of railroad that led into central Mississippi. Two years later, the Federals would be able to do such a thing, but in the summer of 1862, it just wasn't possible. And so, after halting at Corinth and carefully considering his next move, Halleck decided to direct his attention toward the west and east, rather than southward. The need to consolidate Union gains seemed more important than launching into an uncertain campaign in difficult territory. Looking westward, west of the Mississippi, to the region known as the Trans-Mississippi, Halleck decided to send aid to Union General Samuel Curtis, who was experiencing difficulties in Arkansas after his victory at Pea Ridge. When Halleck turned his attention eastward, he found that consolidating federal control over the rest of the Upper South would be far more difficult than supporting Curtis's little army over in Arkansas. 
The concentration of Union troops that had allowed Grant and Buell to drive south had meant that the Federals were stretched thin everywhere else. Large areas of Tennessee weren't really controlled by either army, and some parts of the state were held only by small, isolated detachments. The Federals firmly held only Nashville and most of Kentucky, but little else. But by mid-June 1862, Halleck was ready to begin the process of securing the rest of the Upper South, with an eye to eventually invading Georgia by way of Chattanooga, a strategic mountain town in the southeast corner of Tennessee. Halleck sent Buell's Army of the Ohio eastward from Corinth to seize Chattanooga. Halleck ordered Buell to move with all possible speed along the line of the Memphis and Charleston Railroad, repairing the rail line as he moved eastward. But Don Carlos Buell, like George McClellan, was not one to rush things, and his natural cautiousness, combined with difficulties in repairing the railroad and troublesome attacks on his supply lines by rebel guerrillas and by Confederate cavalry, meant that Buell's advance on Chattanooga slowed to a snail's pace. Halleck was called to Washington in July to assume the job of general-in-chief. Meanwhile, as Buell continued to toil toward Chattanooga, pushing his hard-working soldiers to their utmost in the hot and humid summer of 1862, he began to receive reports that sizable numbers of Confederate troops were leaving Tupelo, their destination unknown. As we've already talked about on the podcast, though, this was Braxton Bragg moving his army by a roundabout route from northern Mississippi over to Chattanooga. Bragg had taken over command of the Rebels' Army of the Mississippi in mid-June after Jefferson Davis sacked PGT Beauregard, who had left the army without permission to spend time at a health spa. As y'all know, after Bragg arrived in Chattanooga, he would join Kirby Smith in a campaign to invade Kentucky. To counter Smith and Bragg's invasion of the Bluegrass State, Buell had abandoned his advance on Chattanooga and moved north into Kentucky. All of that led to the Battle of Perryville, which took place on October 8, 1862. But when Bragg had moved his army from Tupelo to Chattanooga, he had been careful not to completely abandon Mississippi. He left about 16,000 men under Major General Sterling Price near Tupelo and another 16,000 men under Major General Earl Van Dorn near Vicksburg, believing that those two forces could cooperate when necessary to protect Mississippi from further federal incursions. Just as important, Bragg counted on Van Dorn and Price to support any of his offensive moves by tying down the Yankees in northern Mississippi and western Tennessee so that those Federals would not be able to reinforce Buell's army. But while Bragg reached for great things up in Kentucky, the forces he left behind in Mississippi to support his operations had enormous difficulties to overcome. They suffered from many of the same problems that would handicap Bragg during his invasion of the Bluegrass State, specifically a divided command structure and far too few troops and resources to accomplish ambitious strategic goals. Even defining what those goals should be was a problem because the detachments Bragg had left behind in Mississippi were led by two generals with strong personalities. As a result, a great deal of extended, long-range debate took place between Bragg, Van Dorn, and Price as to just what the rebels in Mississippi ought to be doing. 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've met both Earl Van Dorn and Sterling Price before on the podcast. Van Dorn's abilities and limitations were amply evident in the Pea Ridge campaign of March 1862 when he rashly rushed his Army of the West into an offensive against a federal force that had invaded Arkansas. He failed to acquaint himself with his force's personnel, capabilities, or logistical limitations, and that campaign ended in disaster for the rebels and opened the door to federal domination of the Trans-Mississippi region for the rest of the war. After their defeat at Pea Ridge, Van Dorn and his army were ordered east of the Mississippi River, where they missed the Battle of Shiloh, but took part in the evacuation of Corinth. As you guys will probably recall, Sterling Price was closely associated with his adopted state of Missouri. Born in Virginia, he moved to Missouri at the age of 22, served in the state's legislature and the U.S. Congress, was a brigadier general of volunteers during the Mexican War, and became governor of Missouri in the 1850s. He was appointed commander of the pro-Confederate Missouri State Guard at the beginning of the Civil War. Price was really an amateur general, but he captured his men's loyalty with his passionate zeal for his adopted state and his fatherly concern for their welfare. Price fought well at Wilson's Creek, the Battle of the Hemp Bales at Lexington, and at Pea Ridge. The state guard was disbanded, and many of its its members transferred into Confederate service after Pea Ridge. Price accepted a commission in the rebel army, but he never lost his fierce desire to save Missouri, even after his men were transferred to Mississippi along with Van Dorn's army. In fact, when the rebels reached Tupelo in June after their withdrawal from Corinth, Price traveled east to Virginia to Richmond to meet with Confederate President Jefferson Davis. It was a stormy meeting. Price demanded authority to go back to the Trans-Mississippi with his Missouri troops in an attempt to resurrect Confederate hopes in that region. Davis, however, argued that Price and his men were needed more urgently east of the river now, and the two men exchanged heated words before Price stormed out of the room. But Price later cooled down and accepted the reality of his situation now. When Price returned to Tupelo in early July, Bragg reaffirmed that he couldn't spare Price or his Missouri troops. But Bragg said he was willing to give Price command of the Army of the West. That was because Van Dorn had already been sent over to Vicksburg to hold that important river city against federal forces ascending and descending the Mississippi. 
and so Van Dorn was given command of the District of Mississippi, while Price took charge of the District of the Tennessee, with instructions to, one, stop any further federal penetration south of Corinth, and two, prevent Grant from sending help to Buell. Sterling Price had two infantry divisions in the Army of the West at Tupelo, with a battery of artillery assigned to each of his brigades. Brigadier Generals Henry Little and Dabney Mari led the two divisions. Price had only about a thousand mounted cavalry, commanded by Colonel Frank Armstrong. His other cavalry units had already been dismounted in Arkansas and were now serving as infantry. With the addition of some reinforcements, Price's strength stood between 15,000 and 16,000 men, all the Confederates had in place to defend the northern half of Mississippi after Bragg's army left for Chattanooga. But Price's men were excellent troops, nearly all of them veterans of Wilson's Creek and Pea Ridge. The Federal situation was much better, even though Halleck had scattered the huge force that had captured Corinth. As y'all recall, three Union armies had marched to victory at Corinth under Halleck's direction. There was Ulysses S. Grant's Army of the Tennessee, although that force had been temporarily led by George Thomas, while Grant was made Halleck's second-in-command. Then there was also Buell's Army of the Ohio and John Pope's smaller Army of the Mississippi. When Halleck left for Washington in July to become General-in-Chief, Buell was already toiling eastward toward Chattanooga along the line of the Memphis and Charleston, and Halleck left Grant in charge of western Tennessee and northern Mississippi. Grant was left with about 60,000 men to consolidate the Federals' hold on that region, and he spread them out in garrisons located at major towns and cities. Unlike the rebels, Grant didn't have to contend with a divided command structure, since he'd been given all the authority he needed to deal with the Confederate presence in northern Mississippi, and in doing so, Grant would demonstrate that he was just as reliable on the strategic defensive as he was aggressive on the offensive. His troops were veterans of Fort Donelson, Shiloh, and New Madrid, and Island Number 10. Grant also had a trio of subordinates whom he trusted. There was William Tecumseh Sherman and Stephen Hurlbut, both of whom had been division commanders under Grant at Shiloh, and William Rosecrans, who arrived on the scene in May in time to take part in the march to Corinth as part of John Pope's force. In June, Rosecrans replaced Pope when Pope was transferred to Virginia. William Stark Rosecrans was 42 years old in the summer of 1862. He was a member of the West Point class of 1842. Among his classmates was Earl Van Dorn. Rosecrans graduated fifth in his class, good enough to earn him a commission as a second lieutenant in the Corps of Engineers. He was promoted to first lieutenant in 1853, but his army service was unremarkable, and plagued by ill health, he resigned his commission in 1854 to pursue a career in business and engineering. Rosecrans ended up in the coal oil business, and along with a couple of partners, opened a refinery in Cincinnati. While Rosecrans was testing an experimental oil one evening, a lamp exploded in his face. He was badly burned and spent the next 18 months recovering from his injuries. 
As soon as he was able, though, he returned to work, and by April of 1861, his business ventures were turning a profit due to several of his successful designs and inventions. However, with the start of the Civil War, Rosecrans returned to uniform as a staff officer under George McClellan, who was then commanding the Department of the Ohio. In May of 1861, Rosecrans was promoted to Brigadier General and as a brigade commander served in the field as McClellan's principal subordinate when Little Mac marched into western Virginia. Rosecrans was primarily responsible for defeating the Confederates at the Battle of Rich Mountain in July, although McClellan, of course, claimed the credit for the victory. Rosecrans watched with envy as McClellan was called to Washington that same month to take command of the main Union field army in the Eastern Theater. Rosecrans stayed in western Virginia, cursing the duplicity of, in his words, quote, that damned little cuss, McClellan. Rosecrans was given command of the Department of the Ohio, but most of his troops were transferred away. And then Abraham Lincoln, who was looking for a shelf on which to put John C. Fremont, after Fremont had made a hash of things out in Missouri, created the Mountain Department in western Virginia and placed Fremont in command of it. That left Rosecrans playing second fiddle to Fremont, which, after his earlier experience with McClellan, left Rosecrans even more embittered. So he went to Washington in search of another assignment. Before the end of May 1862, he was on his way to the Western Theater with orders to report to Halleck. On the march to Corinth, Halleck assigned him to John Pope's Army of the Mississippi. Rosecrans and Pope had been classmates at West Point, and Pope was pleased to have him. He gave Rosecrans command of his two right-wing divisions. When Pope was summoned east near the end of June, Rosecrans unexpectedly found himself placed in charge of Pope's army, which consisted of five divisions of infantry and one of cavalry. In July, when Halleck was called up to Washington, Ulysses S. Grant was left in command of the Department of West Tennessee, with control over his own Army of the Tennessee and Rosecrans' Army of the Mississippi. Buell's Army of the Ohio, which was advancing toward Chattanooga at the time, was outside Grant's authority. With Halleck's departure from the Western Theater, Buell would report directly to Washington, and so would Grant. Between his own army and Rosecrans' force, Grant had just over 60,000 men available for duty in his department, but that was still far too few to think about launching an offensive so Grant could only consolidate the Federals' hold on and protect what had already been won. As a result, as we've already mentioned, he spread detachments out across the region, from western Tennessee over to northern Mississippi, covering major cities and towns from Memphis in the west to Corinth in the east. And so with Grant too weak to take the offensive, the prospects for battle depended on the Confederates at Tupelo. After Braxton Bragg departed for Chattanooga, Sterling Price found he faced a daunting challenge in the federal dispositions that were designed to protect the Yankees' hold on the region. With only about 16,000 or so men, Price could never hope to directly assault any of the towns that were strongly garrisoned by the enemy. 
Really, to take any action against the Federals in the area, Price would need Earl Van Dorn's cooperation. But when Bragg departed for Chattanooga, leaving behind Van Dorn at Vicksburg and Price at Tupelo, he failed to give clear and precise orders to them, or designate one of them to command in his absence. The closest Bragg came to addressing the matter was indicating that Van Dorn's date of rank would give him control whenever he and Price might join forces. Bragg left no real instructions for Sterling Price, other than urging him to prevent any federal penetration southward from Corinth and keep Grant and Rosecrans from reinforcing Buell. How Price might accomplish that was left to Price's discretion. Bragg also told Price that Price and Van Dorn might need to conduct a joint offensive up into western Tennessee to support Bragg's and Kirby Smith's own strike further to the east, but Bragg left Price no specific instructions in this regard. Bragg also offered Van Dorn little in the way of specific instructions. The day before he left for Chattanooga, Bragg suggested Van Dorn, quote, Consult freely and cooperate with Major General Price. It is expected that you will do all things deemed needful without waiting for instructions from these headquarters. General Price will be instructed to the same effect. End quote. With such minimal guidance from Bragg, it's not surprising that problems arose almost immediately. Since Bragg had indicated his desire that Price keep Grant and Rosecrans occupied so that they couldn't send reinforcements to Buell, Price interpreted this to mean that he should move against the Federals. Therefore, on July 29th, the day the last of Bragg's army left Tupelo, Price began to make plans for a march toward Corinth, but he realized that even a diversionary movement wouldn't impress the Yankees unless it was made with the combined strength of his and Van Dorn's forces. And so on July 31st, Price wrote to Van Dorn, saying he could be ready in a few days to march northward, and even offering to place himself and his troops under Van Dorn's command as an added incentive to get Van Dorn to come and help. But Van Dorn was far too busy just then to aid Price. Van Dorn had rebuffed Farragut at Vicksburg in late July and then immediately ordered John C. Breckinridge to go south and attack Baton Rouge with a force that included five regiments of Confederate Kentuckians. As y'all recall from our Perryville story arc, those Kentucky troops would miss out on taking part in Bragg's invasion of the Bluegrass State. Anyway, with that operation to retake Louisiana State Capitol already underway, Van Dorn, rather than cooperate with Price, actually responded with the request that Price send him a brigade of troops. But Price's chief of staff, Major Thomas Sneed, had already been warned that this might happen. Before William Hardy left Tupelo with Bragg's army, he had advised Sneed to watch for trouble. Hardy had learned that Van Dorn had launched an operation against Baton Rouge, and Hardy, according to Sneed, quote, feared it would lead Van Dorn into other adventures, which would overtask his strength, and that Van Dorn would then call on General Price to help him. But Hardy cautioned Sneed that Price must not weaken himself, since, quote, the success of General Bragg's movement into Tennessee and Kentucky depends greatly upon Price's ability to keep Grant from reinforcing Buell. 
Say to General Price that I know that General Bragg expects him to keep his men well in hand and ready to move northward at a moment's notice. So, with those words of caution from Hardy hanging in the air, Price received a telegram from Bragg on August 2nd, informing him that Grant had already sent troops to reinforce Buell. And Grant was, in fact, transferring some brigades to aid Buell. So, one important element of Confederate strategy, preventing Grant from sending help to Buell, had already failed. At any rate, Price informed Van Dorn that he couldn't transfer any men south to help Breckenridge. Price also told Van Dorn that the Federals were taking troops from Corinth to send to Buell, and with the enemy garrison there thus weakened, quote, We should be quick to take advantage of this. Every consideration makes it important that I move forward without a day's unnecessary delay. I earnestly desire your cooperation in such a movement, and will, as I have before said, gladly place my army and myself under your command in that contingency. To better his chance of gaining Van Dorn's cooperation, Price sent a copy of the message to Bragg, who approved it. Believing that things were moving forward, Price readied his men for a march north from Tupelo. On September 4th, Price informed Van Dorn that he was ready to set out with some 13,000 infantry and 3,000 cavalry. Meanwhile, on August 5th, Breckenridge's attack on Baton Rouge had been a failure, despite the fact that Van Dorn had sent the ironclad CSS Arkansas steaming south down the Mississippi from Vicksburg in an ill-advised attempt to provide Breckenridge with some naval support. The Arkansas was destroyed, and while the Confederate land assault experienced some initial success, the Federals were able to hang on, and Breckenridge had to retreat. In any case, Van Dorn ended up recalling Breckenridge, who withdrew back to Mississippi. Van Dorn then informed Price that he was at last ready to cooperate with him. And, as far as laying out the background and setting the stage for the battles of Iuka and Corinth, I think that's where we'll leave things for now. With the next episode, we'll get to the Battle of Iuka, which took place on September 19th, 1862, and is interesting, well, for many reasons, but one is that it involves another acoustic shadow. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is American Ulysses, A Life of Ulysses S. Grant by Ronald C. White. Yep, uh, we thought we'd take this opportunity to recommend this new biography of Grant. Uh, Well, uh, new in that it came out last year, in 2016. But like White's excellent biography of Abraham Lincoln, we're also fans of this book about Grant. So that's American Ulysses, A Life of Ulysses S. Grant by Ronald C. White. And don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We wanted to say thank you to everyone who had such nice things to say this past week on Facebook and Twitter about the podcast turning five years old. We enjoyed reading those comments. 
And if you don't already follow us on Facebook or on Twitter, you probably missed what Tracy and I had to say about the podcast reaching that milestone. I mean, five years. Wow. Here's to the next five years, right? (laughs) Well, at the rate we're going, that'll probably be just about right. Yeah, seriously. Um, anyway, that was supposed to be a plug for you guys to check out the Facebook page or Twitter feed. But yeah, we do plan on sticking with this however long it takes, even if no one else is still listening by then. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's wrap this up with a quick thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Greg and Andrew, who joined up this past week. Thanks, guys. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.